Well, Merry Christmas from the Church 1122. Hey, we're excited. This is uh, the beginning of a new series called Unexpected Hope. And over the next few weeks, including our first ever on-site Christmas Eve service, uh, we're just going to be digging into this idea of going face-to-face with Jesus and just ordinary men and women encountering Jesus in an unexpected way that, that gave them hope uh, where they didn't even see hope was possible. And uh, we just wanted to get you started. If you have not started your holiday trek through good Christmas movies, uh, we wanted to get you started. If you haven't started your Christmas movie trek, uh, I question your love for Jesus. I just do, right? <clears throat> um, we have already taken down Home Alone, and a uh, really good chance Home Alone 2 will be taken down this afternoon. We, my family is on a journey to the climax, the greatest Christmas movie ever, Prep and Landing. Uh, if you don't know about Prep and Landing, it's because you don't have kids, and you need to go invest about 30 minutes into Prep and Landing. It's like Mission Impossible meets uh, the show 24 meets Santa Claus. It's, a, it's probably the best, uh, the, the most incredible 30 minutes of cinema, cinematic photography in, in the whole category of crappy cartoons. It is unbelievable, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We love Jesus. We will watch Christmas movies uh, all the way until you know, mid-January, my wife says, okay, put them, put them away. And uh, only because of her are we a sane family. But uh, we're going to dig in week by week. And my goal today is really to kind of set the table uh, to lay the foundation of this idea of going face-to-face with Jesus. For, for us in, in humanity to go face-to-face with Jesus, it required Jesus to become uh, what theologians call the incarnate Jesus or the incarnate Jesus. And so we're going to wrestle through what does it mean for Jesus to be fully God and to be fully man. And so we're just going to kind of dig in and walk through a couple different passages of scripture and just look at this idea of for us to go face to face with Jesus, it started with uh, Jesus taking on on skin, Jesus taking on humanity. And so um, <clears throat> we're going to start with Luke chapter 2. Why would you not start? It's Christmas season. Why would we not go to Luke chapter 2? Um, I begged our creative team to let me just play the Peanuts uh, Linus reading this, but they said one Christmas movie for a week. And I told them, bah humbug. And so I'm just going to read this uh, for us. Luke chapter 2, it says this, that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Crinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, now, don't miss the reality of this text. I think, I think sometimes when, they, when we read some common text or common scripture, it really is easy just to kind of flash back to Linus at, at, uh, at the, the Peanuts movie, where he's just kind of reading it. You're like, oh yeah, that's the story we bring out during December. But this is actually a real event. It's a real historical event, and we can kind of just brush by it, but there's so much chaos going on right here. I mean, just think about it. Uh, Mary, she's just a little teenage girl. Uh, she's engaged to be married to this strapping carpenter named Joseph, and everything in her world is starting to kind of piece together, and then an angel visits her, right? And that alone is pretty chaotic. I've never had an angel visit me, but I'm assuming chaotic, right? And so the angel shows up and says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't, you, you have found favor with God. And Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah, To which I know Mary's going, you know, in one half of her brain, she's going, oh my goodness, for hundreds of years, the Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah, and the angel just told me that I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah. And then on the other hand, I know it immediately goes to, how do I tell my fiance? Like this balance is like, how do I, okay, hey Joseph, um, I'm pregnant, Uh, it's not yours, 
It's actually not any, anybody's. It's actually God's child, right? Can you just imagine how crazy this is? And if I'm Joseph, I'm like, what's going on here? I'm going, hey, look, here's the deal. I think I would break the engagement off, right? I would think I would look at her and go, hey, that sounds crazy, and I don't really want to deal with crazy for the rest of my life. So, like, God bless you and your ministry of, like, mothering the Messiah, but I'm out, right? And the, the Bible tells us that Luke, or it tells us that Joseph was actually tr- was going to get rid of uh, Mary quietly, which is not like mafia for, like, killer. Um, it just means that he, was gonna, he wasn't going to make a big deal about it. And then the angel visits him and goes, hey, Joseph, Mary, Mary's pregnant with the Son of God, the Messiah. So you got Mary and Joseph, right? And, and I, I know what they're thinking. Okay, if the rest of our lives, people are going to look at our marriage date and they're going to look at Jesus's birthday and go, I don't, I don't understand the math here. And it's chaos, right? And so not only is it chaos, not only is it frustrating, not only is it fearful, but then right in the middle of Mary being full-term pregnant, right? There's like three stages of pregnancy. There's the first stage. I call it the barf stage. There's a second stage. It's like kind of normal. Like it's not actually your wife, but it's, she's kind of normal. And then there's the third stage where she's just bigger than she's ever been in her life. She's angry because she can't like sleep because every time she rolls over, the whole bed flips and like she has to pee every 30 seconds. I call it the, the angry stage, right? So we've moved, Mary's moved from the barf stage to the everything's kind of normal stage to the like I'm full term. And right in the middle of all this chaos, the, the, the governor goes, hey, by the way, I want everybody to go to their hometown, all right? Not convenient. So Mary and Joseph, full-term pregnant, are on their way to, to their hometown, to Bethlehem, right? It's about 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, um, kind of about as far as it he- is here from Gainesville, right? And I don't really know who would want to go to Gainesville besides like Seminoles, because apparently y'all like it there. Um, but it's kind of ironic that after next weekend, the gators and the dogs are going to have the same number of losses. <clears throat> this feels good, Right? Anyway, back to what we're talking about here. So they're going like 70 miles. So Mary and Joseph are going to go about 70 miles. It'd be like walking from here to Gainesville, right, with a fully, full pregnant, full-term woman, right? I mean, you think about trying to get from here to Gainesville in a car and the number of times you have to stop for your pregnant wife to pee. Just imagine, it's like four or five days of like every few, like we got to find another shrub, babe, right? And it's a little bit, it's chaotic. Like that's the kind of, that's the actual reality of, of the experience here. So Mary and Joseph, pregnant full term, are heading to Bethlehem to check in for the census. Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in an inn. Like Bethlehem was kind of a small town. So when all these people came back home to Bethlehem to register, all the hotels got filled up like that. And, and then you know Mary and Joseph didn't get a hotel because, like I said, she's pregnant. So it took them like twice as long to get anywhere. And so they get there, and there's no place for them to stay. They end up staying in a, in a stable, in a manger. And the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah that was promised to come and to be the salvation of the world is born, wrapped in clothes, and placed in a trough. Like that, that's the entrance of the King of, the king of kings into the world. And it's chaotic. And it's, it's chaos. And then verse 8, meanwhile, verse 8, and in the same region, there were shepherds. Now, you got to know this. Shepherds were like the lowest of the low of the jobs, right? So you think about the one job in this world that like you would rather be unemployed than do that job, okay? That's what the shepherds were. It was like the low, the stinkiest, nastiest job you could have. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior 
who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. So the angels show up to the shepherds and go, hey, good news. The Messiah, King, Savior, Jesus is here. And you're going to find him, not in a palace, not in a hotel, but in a trough in the manger out behind the hotel. And so I'm sure the shepherds are going, what's going on here? Here's what I think God's declaring here. I think God is declaring that, he was, that God intentionally chose a position of humility to declare his majesty. I think Jesus being wrapped in swallowing clothes and putting in a trough is a declaration that God was choosing a position of humility to declare his majesty. Now don't miss verse 11. It says this, for unto you. So, so far in Luke 2, we've met Mary, we've met Joseph, and we've met the shepherds. And the declaration is that unto you, unto these, unto these people, the Savior was born. Now, you got to get this. Mary and Joseph from a town called Nazareth, right? So just think for a second about the most redneck, backwoods town you can think about, right? I'm thinking about Dillon, South Carolina. I don't know what you're thinking about. I'm thinking about Dillon, South Carolina, right? And the most backwoods, they're a backwoods couple from a backwoods part of the world, right? And then the shepherds are like the lowest of the low. Like, they're the lowest place in the, mar- they're the, lowest place in the marketplace. Like, like I said, it would not be a job. You would, you would choose unemployment and then choose the job. And, and the angels declare unto you, unto you, a backwoods couple and the bottom of the marketplace, into this position and place of humility, the king is born. Now, what I want to do today is take Philippians chapter 2 and lay it next to Luke 2 and let us see uh, a, a whole scriptural viewpoint of what Luke 2 is about. So Philippians chapter 2 says this, verse 5. Have this in mind, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now here's the thing. If you look at Luke 2 by itself, it almost begins to look like that Christmas is kind of this picture of this helpless baby accidentally being born out back in the stable. But if you look at it through the lens of of Philippians 2, what you see is this. Christmas is not about a helpless baby accidentally born in a stable. Christmas is about seeing the majesty of the fully divine Jesus humbling himself and coming to rescue that which is his. Like when we step back, what we see in Luke 2 is this unexpected hope of Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, stepping into creation to come and save that which was his. Now I want to dig into Philippians 2 so we can unpack and see this, uh, hopefully for the depth that it is. Um, Verse 5, having this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus? who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Underline that word, form of God. Uh, The Greek word here, the Greek word being used is morphe theos, which means this, the exact nature or character of something, in this case of God, with an emphasis on the internal and external form. What does that mean? It means this, that Jesus was the exact nature of God, both internally and externally. 
Well, what does it mean to be the exact nature of God? Four things, not exhaustive, but it'll help begin to paint the picture for us. One, um, just like God, Jesus is eternal. That Jesus is the nature of God, so Jesus is eternal. John chapter 1 says this, that in the beginning was the Word. Notice that capital W, this is talking about Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus, or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. Flip back a few more pages in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus prays this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. That Jesus is eternal. That before the foundation of the world, Jesus existed in God's glory. And I love this, before the foundation of the world, Jesus was God's plan A to save us. But Jesus was not plan B. Jesus was plan A before the foundations of the, of the world. The second thing is this, is this. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Meaning this, that Jesus is a 100% exact imprint of God. That Jesus is fully God. Jesus was not um, created later. Jesus was not created by God. Jesus is God. The third thing is this, as we talk about Jesus being in the full nature of God. The third thing is this, is that Jesus is the visible expression of God's glory. That God's glory is his presence made known, and Jesus is the visible expression of that glory. Colossians, we've been studying this for a few weeks now. Here's what it says, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Jesus is the exact imprint. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the visual expression. And then finally this, Jesus is the fullness of God. Colossians 1.19 says this, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, Jesus is the whole totality of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus is everything that God is, that Jesus is immutable, which is a big theological word that means this. Jesus doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That Jesus is omnipotent. He has all the power of the world. That Jesus can be present anywhere at any time. That Jesus is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. That Jesus, in the fullness of God, Jesus is holy. Jesus is perfectly, 100% holy. That he is pure and holy and completely set apart. Now here's the thing. We do not miss the majesty of Jesus because of the intimacy of the nativity. I think sometimes we can get to Christmas and we can look at Christmas and get really excited about baby Jesus and we can go to Talladega Nights and start praying to eight pounds baby Jesus and we just get wrapped into this kind of intimacy of the, of the, of the manger. We get wrapped into it and I would just warn us, don't miss the majesty of Jesus just because Jesus took on the form of man, does not mean that Jesus is not fully God. That Jesus is fully God, fully perfect, fully holy, fully, full. everything that we think of God is in Jesus. We can't miss that majesty because he chose to put on skin. The word there for grass, I love it, it says Jesus, he knew he was the exact imprint, eternal, uh, visible expression of the fullness of God, and yet he did not choose to count equality as a thing to be grasped. That word there for grass is a Greek word, it means harpagmos. It means this, uh, to be retained by force or to cling to something for one's own advantage. 
Here's the truth. Jesus knew that he had the fullness of God. Like Jesus knew that he possessed the fullness of God and yet, and yet chose not to claim it. He chose not to claim it. Verse 7. Jesus, knowing that he had the fullness of God, chose not to claim it, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That, that word there for emptied himself is kano, which means this, to completely remove or eliminate elements of high status, high status and rank by eliminating all privileges and prerogatives associated with such status or rank. Meaning this, that Jesus knew that he was fully God. And yet he chose, he knew he was the king of the universe, and yet Jesus chose to set aside all those privileges and all those ranks and all those rights that Jesus chose to set aside the privilege of being God. He chose to set that privilege aside to become a little baby born in a manger. That he emptied himself. Now he didn't empty himself by becoming less God. He emptied himself by adding humanity to his divinity. Here's how it says in verse 7. It says he emptied himself. How did he do that? Well, first of all, the Lord Jesus became a servant. The Lord, King Jesus, became a servant. That Jesus' love drove him from all the power in heaven to being swaddled and cared for and nurtured as a baby to handle our sin problem. That Jesus saw that our sin had created a problem, and he chose, the Lord King God chose to become a servant. And when we understand that drastic move of Jesus, it changes everything about the fabric of our being. The second thing is this, is that God became man. So not only did Lord King Jesus become a servant, but God became man. Not subtracting his deity, but adding to his deity humanity. That Jesus did not become any less God, but he chose to limit his own rank and privilege to be of no effect. See, what happened is the internal uh, reality of Jesus manifested itself in outward response. So the attitude of being a servant, the fact that Jesus chose to become a servant, the attitude of being a servant led Jesus to the action of becoming a human. That the inner reality of being a servant led to the outer action. Here's another way to say this. External actions are simply internal convictions made manifest. You want to know what you're convicted about? You want to know what you and I are convicted about? All you got to do is study your behavior. Our external Reactions are simply our internal convictions made manifest. Another way to say it is this, is that belief precedes action. That what you believe is what you act on. That belief precedes actions. There's some things I'm convicted on. One of them is this, I'm convicted. I'm convicted that my children will see my faith louder than they'll ever hear my faith. I'm convicted. My children will look at me and see my faith a lot louder than they hear my faith. Meaning this, I think my children, all of our children, are better mimickers than listeners. It's why no matter what you say, they're just going to do what you do. They're just going to follow your behaviors. And so for me and and Blair in our house, I constantly wrestle with, what does it mean for my children to see my faith? You see, our family's kind of just wrapped everything around, like life and loving Jesus and being a part of the church. But I don't want my kids just to go, church is something we do. I want them to understand that faith, that my inner faith compels our actions. I mean, we do things like we pray as a family. Like we just pray out loud. We, take pray, we, we pray when people are sick. 
And I'll tell you what, it wrecked me yesterday. I was, I was like sick, sick yesterday. Like I was watching the Georgia, Georgia Tech game, and I fell asleep during it a couple times, which never happens, all right? And I was like, oh, something's not right here. And then I woke up during the Alabama-Auburn game, and, and I uh, projectile vomited. I was like, something's really not right here. Something's not good at all. I won't even go from there. I got more details. I'll share them later off stage. But I, I'm, I was sick, and like I knew I was preaching day, and I was starting to get like, oh, my goodness, what if I'm like, what if I'm super, super sick? And I, don't, I was starting to freak out. And so I'm going to go to bed, and you know what happened? My four-year-old says, Daddy, can I pray for you? Oh. She's, so I sit down, my four-year-old grabs my hand, and she says, Dear God, help Daddy be, be, be better so he can preach tomorrow. Woo! And then I look up, and my four-year-old's just got a tear running down her face, right? At the beginning, one of those adopt-a-dog commercials. I was done. <laughs> I was done. But you know, for me, that was the, the, the best thing that could happen. My four-year-old going, I've seen your faith, and I want to walk in it. Another thing that's happened in our house um, recently, and it's part of this before all things journey we've been on. This past May or June, we were getting ready at a staff level and some of the leadership level. We were kind of walking through the first steps of before all thing. And, and my wife and I were going on a, a retreat to kind of get away and, and with, with some other people from the church to begin to talk about what does it look like to put Christ before all things. And my wife had been doing a Bible study. And before we left, she just asked this question. You know, Ryan, what, what are we actually doing that requires us to have faith? To which I just be like, woman, I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. What? Back off, right? And then I chose not to do that because, you know, I love my marriage. I want to keep her. Um, and then I just said, what, what do you mean? She goes, well, what are we doing? Like, what are you and I doing that requires faith? Obedience? We're doing a lot of things that requires obedience. Like, we're seeing God move and we're following. But what are we doing that actually is calling us to live in faith? And we actually came home from that retreat and, and really felt like the Lord told us two things. One, we felt like it was time to bring my wife home, like to bring her home. Uh, as we move into launching Bay Meadows, we, our, my house needed stability. And so we just said, you're coming home. You're going to be the, the stable one of the family, to which my wife said, I've always been the stable one in this family. Um, I told you, we're coming home. And, and, and when, when my wife comes home, that means she doesn't make a salary. And so I thought, okay, great, Lord. That means I can take what we were going to give to before all things, and I can subtract whatever her salary was, when the Lord said, no, 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 I didn't, when I called you to, for your wife to come home, I didn't call you to be any less generous or trust me any less. And so we made a decision coming out of that trip for us that before all things meant two things. My wife was coming home to, to, to provide the foundation for my family, and we were going to give more than we'd ever given in our life, right? Now that scared the out of me, right? You can fill that blank in depending on how holy you are, you, depending on what you said, but it scared me. It scared me, and what I realized is I, as I wrestle through, and last week as we sat down and wrote this number in the green box, what I realized is, is that my kids are going to see my faith because it's going to change the way we live. It's going to force us to do things differently because our faith that God's going to take care of what he's called us to do, it changes us. And, and I know this. I know some of you are still wrestling through what you're going to commit to. And we've talked about 100% commitment, 100% if you're a part of this church. And, and here's the thing. Here's why 100% is important. I fully believe that God's going to fund and fuel his dreams for this church. The 100% is actually more important because what I believe is that God's going to stretch your faith in filling out this card. That those convictions about what Christ has done for you are going to become actions because those convictions are going to become manifest. And so even today, as some of you maybe grabbed the card last week, you've been wrestling with writing that number down and making a commitment to what God's doing here. Today, during the response, you've got another chance to fill the card out and bring it and turn it in. Second thing I'm convicted about is this. I'm convicted, I'm convicted that geography cannot be a limitation. Like I'm convicted that geography is a, is a horrible limitation for the gospel. 
Now, a year ago, we were talking about launching the Church of 1122 at Bay Meadows. And on January 10th, we're launching it. And a year ago, I'm sitting in a room going, I'm all about multi-site. I'm about taking the church to the neighborhoods. I'm convicted that we need to take the gospel and reach the city. And, and, and then there was a moment in which I had to sit down and begin to go, now, what level do I believe this? Well, for me and my family, I believe it to the level of I'm going to lead it. Like my internal conviction that geography shouldn't be a, a limitation for the gospel compels me to, to step up and go lead and plant the church of 1122 at Bay Meadows. And on January 10th, we're planning it. And for some of, some of you kills kind of wrestling through, what does that mean? It means this, one church, many locations. That if on January 10th, when you show up at Bay Meadows, you're going to walk in. There's going to be the same parking team and greeting team, the same incredible new gen little kids and kids experience, a live band singing the same songs. And we're even going to have, uh, we're going to use technology to deliver the same message that as Pastor Joby teaches, uh, is going to be delivered in all of, our, all of our venues. We're going to use technology to steward his gift. He's a phenomenal communicator of the gospel. And as one church, we want to just continue to line up under the same message and the same teaching. And personally, I love it because I've got more time to pastor people. So on January 10th, we're launching the Church 1122 at Bay Meadows. One church, many locations. And guess what? I need a 1,000 of you to go with me. Now, at 9 o'clock, they laughed, and I upped it to 1,500. Here, here's what I mean. I need a 1,000 of you to go with me to launch the Church 1122 at Bay Meadows so that we can create a culture, the 1122 culture of worship in the church at Bay Meadows so that we can reach the 97,000 people that live within five miles of the Church 1122 at Bay Meadows. I'm convicted about that. You know what? I'm also convicted about this. I'm convicted that the church has to lead has to lead with love. I think the culture and the climate we live in right now is a culture and a climate that if we as a church don't choose to lead with love, we're just going to find ourselves with enemies and arguments. Here's the deal. Just go through like the presidential like elections coming up, okay? That alone is enough to drive you crazy. And then you've got Syrian refugees, you've got ISIS, Right, You've, I mean, just you could just go through the list of things. The conversation in our culture about police officers, the conversation in our culture about sexuality, the conversation in our culture about about about. It is a a climate and a culture we live in that's very argumentative. And here's what I believe: I believe when Christ saved me and when Christ saved you, Jesus didn't save us to become the best debaters the world's ever seen. He's he rescued us that we would choose to rescue others. And, and here's the deal: when we lead with love. We get, actually get to know someone. We actually get to, to know their, their, their hang-ups and their heartbreaks. And we get to know them personally. And then in that personal relationship, we get to introduce the gospel. We get to introduce Jesus who loves them. When we choose to lead with debating, all we do is create arguments and enemies. And if the church chooses to lead with anything else but love, I don't think we got what Jesus did. Like Jesus left heaven and came as a baby to lead with love. One of the things we're going to do as a church, we want to make this a super easy action step for you. So on December the 12th, at 10 a.m., we're going to go to the Bay Meadows community, and we're going to lead with love. And we're going to, this is open to the entire church. It's bring your families. We're going to go, and, and uh, at 10 a.m., we're going to kind of start with a little worship and prayer in the Bay Meadows parking lot. And then we're going to spread out to the elementary school and the middle school. We're going to go to nursing homes. We're going to go uh, walk and pray through neighborhoods. Not like knock on doors, like if you were to die tonight, would you... You, you know where you would go, which always scares me. I'm like, did you plant a bomb? I mean, like, <laughs> and why people keep witnessing me on the beach? I, I want to put a shirt that says, I love Jesus. 
Don't waste, don't waste your time on me. I don't know what to do. But here's the deal. We're not going to go all crazy, but we're going to go to the community, and we're going to worship in the parking lot, and we're going to go love the neighborhoods. We're going to lead with love. About a month before we launch, on December 12th, there's a Facebook group if you need a reminder 12 times between now and then. But we're just going to go and lead with love. And you should just come. Bring your family dressed to work. I don't, we'll tell you that morning what your job is. Bring every tool you have. You might get to use one of them. We're just going to go, and we're going to lead and lavish that area with love. And then because I am a recovering Southern Baptist, what we're going to do at the end of the day is we're going to go eat. And we're just going to go eat in all the restaurants. And guess what? I'm going to tell you to order big, order outrageously, and then tip 100% when you leave. Like we want to go into the neighborhood and go, we're here, we're your neighbors, we love you. And then have the conversation about what the gospel means. Here's what I love about verse 7. Here's, here's verse 7, it comes down. The, it comes down to this. The creator and sustainer of all things that have existed that will exist, that, that exists right now. The creator and sustainer of all creation chose to come and serve what he created. That Jesus knew he was fully God and chose to empty himself, to take the form of the servant, to put on the likeness of men and come and serve what he created. Now just think, if you have kids, how backwards this is, right? Like I look at my kids and go, hey, look, here's the deal. I made you, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of the world, serve me. Bring me the remote, right? It's, just, it's that moment. This is the opposite. This is Jesus going, I don't have to go serve anybody. I don't have to go save anybody. But Jesus, who created everything, chose to come and to serve us. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, underline that word human form. I, I love what Paul does here. Earlier, when he talks about the form of God, he uses the word morphetheos, which means the exact imprint of God, both internally and externally. What he does here is he switches it and uses a different word, and Paul says the schema anthropos, which means the appearance of or the outward form of man. It's this declaration from Paul that says the deity remained fully God and put on skin. That Jesus did not lay aside his majesty, he simply cloaked his majesty in skin that he could walk among us. It goes on, Here, here's the things that Jesus, and he put on human form. We already know that the Lord King became a servant. We already know that God became a man. And here's, here's the third way that Christ emptied himself. Jesus chose to die. Like think about this, Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. Meaning this, that because we've sinned, we have earned death. The reason that we as humans will die is because sin has entered the world and we have, we have earned dying. All of us, the, the death rate's right around 100% for the world because we are going to die. Here, here's the thing, though. Jesus did not sin. Therefore, Jesus had no wage or had no penalty of death. When Jesus dies, it's not because he himself had earned the, the, the wage of death. It's because he himself had chosen to pay the wage for us. It goes on in Colossians 1.17. We read this one. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Just think about this. All things hold together. Your heartbeat, the heartbeat of the person next to you, the heartbeat of everybody in this room, the heartbeat of everybody in the world, he's holding them together. He's holding them in steady rhythm. The heartbeat, the, the eye blinking, the, every time you begin to take breath in and out, the, the tides and the currents and, and the, all the things that are being held together in all of creation, that Jesus is, is making the rhythm of every heartbeat across creation. 
John says it this way, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father, that Jesus, holding together the rhythm of every heartbeat. No one, no one killed Jesus. Jesus died when he told his heart to stop. You get the, the depth of that? It wasn't that we got Jesus. It's that Jesus hanging on the cross, the spear didn't kill him, the nails didn't kill him, the dehydration didn't kill him, the sun didn't, didn't kill him. He said, heart, stop. I'm going to lay my life down for these people. You see, Jesus chose to obey even at the cost of his own life. Obedience is best measured in the willingness to sacrifice. And Jesus, who was fully God, took on the cloak of humanity and chose to die. And not only did he choose to die, not only did he choose to tell his own heart to stop, but he died even death on a cross. That God was was tortured for the punishment of our sins. You see, the cross was such a nasty way to die. It was such a nasty, torturing mechanism that the Romans would not even kill their own citizens with it. The cross was reserved for foreigners and slaves only. It was so disgusting that Romans wouldn't even kill their own people on it. And yet Jesus died on the cross. See, we cannot look lightly at the cross. We can't glance past the brutality enforced on Jesus because of our behaviors. We can't. But as Jesus was beaten, bloody, and hung on the cross, we can't, we can't just look at it at the end of the story of Jesus' life. It was a brutal, nasty, torture way to kill someone. The cross was physically excruciating. The cross was morally degrading. The cross was the ultimate humiliation of a way to kill somebody. And I think it paints a perfect picture because here's the here's the reality our sin is excruciatingly pain excruciatingly painful to the creation of god see god created heavens and earth in what's called shalom or perfectness that you and i were created to commune with god to walk with god to have this perfect peace and 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 relationship with god and when sin entered the world it tore apart the fabric of all creation i mean romans 8 talks about the fact that all creation is moaning for redemption that our sin it's excruciating painful to god's design our, our sin is also degrading to the holiness of God. Now, I don't mean that God's holiness is being taken away from at all. God is perfectly holy. But because of our sin, we cannot be in the presence of our creator because he is perfect and holy. He just cannot, he, he doesn't have sin in his presence. And our sin is the ultimate humiliation against the perfect will of God. That God's perfect will is that we would know him and love him and walk with him. And because of our sin, because sin has separated us, has broken our relationship with God, sin is, is the ultimate humiliation. And what Christ did on the cross was declare that our sin was all those things, and yet he was still going to come and forgive us. Galatians chapter 3 says it this way, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So then in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Lord Jesus, the Savior, took on a criminal's death so that we, the criminals, can take on the robes of righteousness. 
that the Lord God, the Lord King became a servant, that God became man, that Jesus chose to die and even chose to die the most brutal deaths available so that he would take on the curse that we deserve. Verse 9, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Therefore what? Therefore, because Christ, who knew he was in the fullness of God, took on skin, he took on humanity in order to come and dwell amongst us so that he would die a death we deserve. Because of that, God highly exalted him. See, the humiliation of Jesus is the foundation of his exaltation by God. The humiliation of Jesus is the foundation of the ex- by the, for which God exalted him. Jesus laid the foundation of his humility. Jesus' willingness to become human is precisely why he, and he alone, can be the salvation of humanity. That Jesus is the sacrificial king that came to live amongst his people and die to rescue what was his. That Jesus is given the name above all names because Jesus himself chose to lay down his own name for all. That Jesus emptied himself. He set aside all the privileges of being a deity to take on skin and to live amongst us. Verse 10. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Right? That's like 100% of creation. See what Paul did there? Okay. If you're above it, if you're on it, or you're below it. There is no other options. Okay. If you're 100% of all creation. There's, There's no way around this. So the name of Jesus, should, every knee should bow, and all of creation, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what Paul is saying here is that whether it be on this side of the grave or the other side of the grave, whether it be in heaven or below, on earth or below, no matter where you go, 100% of all creation will bow before King Jesus and will, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Now, here, here's the deal. I, I, believe, I believe that there's an enemy who's out to get us. I believe there's an enemy. I believe there's a true enemy, Satan. I believe he's out to trap us. You see, John 10 says that, the, that, that Jesus came to give life, but right before that it says that, that the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. And here's the trap that I think the devil would trap us in. I think the enemy wants to make you feel like you're the Lord of your life now. The truth is, is that one day, this side of the grave or the other, we will all declare Jesus is Lord. But I think the enemy wants to come and help you and trick you and trap you into believing that you are the Lord of your life right now. Here's how the trap looks. You feel financially secure. You feel, I got it all together. I've got my finances together. Why do I need Jesus? You feel comfortable. Like everything in your life is right where you would want to place it. And because you're so comfortable, why would you throw it all out of whack by trying to add in Jesus? You're happy. You feel happy. Like, this is as good as life can get. It's a trap. It's a feeling. of I don't, I don't, I'm as good as life can get. Why would I change anything? There's a trap that you feel like you can handle your own affairs. You always have. You've done a good job, good job of managing life. I feel like I can handle my own affairs. Or this, you feel like you're the king of your own mountain. Like you feel like I am the king of, I have got it together, I'm comfortable, I'm happy, I'm financially secure, I'm enjoying life. But here's the deal, it's all fading. See, every single one of us is one phone call away, one doctor visit away, one night that just got out of control, one mistake, one bad business deal, one person we thought loved us betraying us. We're just one moment away from the mountain around us crumbling. 
Here's the truth with all the trophies of the world. I mean, every trophy you can think of, like the perfect family, the perfect job, all the toys of the world, all the, all the good looks of the world, all the talents of the world, like whatever you would say, this is a perfect world. If I could just get this world with all the trophies of this world, it is true that every single one of us lays in our coffins empty-handed. No matter how much of this world you grab a hold of, no matter all the good things of this world that you grab a hold of, one day we will all be laying in our coffins empty-handed, except for when we cling to the cross of Jesus. Look, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, I came here this weekend because I thought I was going to get a fun little Christmas message. Well, this is a great message, right? And here's why. Because the gospel does its best work. The gospel does its best work in the midst of bad news. Paul's actually quoting Isaiah 45 here. In, in Isaiah 45, God's describing a, a world with no idols, a world with nothing that gets in the way of him. Isaiah 45 says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incest against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. What's Isaiah 45 saying? There is a day coming when all the idols of the world will fade. And anyone who clung to those idols will come and be ashamed in front of him. But for every single person, for every single tongue that declares that God is Lord, that God is sovereign and king of all, then what's, what's to come? Righteousness and strength. All, will, all of us, 100% of us, will recognize Jesus as Lord. And it is such a tragedy that some will wait until death to declare Jesus the Lord of life. That crushes my soul. Like this is not me up here going, hey, this is a great idea. Let's make it as narrow as possible. This is just the declaration of Scripture. That Jesus himself declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. I know it's increasingly, it's amazingly narrow. But the invitation is actually as wide as it can be. Here's what I mean. All of us will respond to Jesus being Lord in one or two ways. There's no loophole. There's no way around it. Some, and I pray, I pray this is as many as I can reach that will voluntarily surrender. That when the recognition of Jesus being Lord, there are some who will voluntarily surrender. Romans 10, 13 says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That the promise of scripture is for every single person who calls on the name of the Lord, Lord Jesus, save me, that they'll be saved. Now the other opportunity, the other response will be to conquered submission. For those who don't voluntarily surrender, conquered submission is the other option. Isaiah 45 declares that, that either you'll come before me declaring I am Lord and you'll be righteous and have strength or you'll come before me obsessed with idols and you'll be ashamed. Hebrews 9.27 says it this way. And just as it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Every single one of us will either self-atone or will accept and receive the atonement of Christ on the cross. Here's what Christmas is about. It's about Jesus coming into our world, putting on flesh, and inviting us to surrender to his kingship. Not demanding it, but inviting us. Walking amongst us and, and inviting us. The good news of the gospel does the best work in the midst of bad news. The truth is that Jesus set aside the privilege of his divinity 
to put on humanity in order that he would step into our depravity and make available to us his righteousness. Not, not because we are awesome, but because he chose to. That Christmas is about this unexpected hope of Jesus coming and dwelling amongst us. This unexpected hope of, the, of God, fully God, taking on flesh. Jesus, the exact imprint, the exact nature, the internal, uh, visible declaration of God's glory. Stepping into humanity. Stepping into depravity and going to the cross so that you and I would have righteousness. How do I respond to this? There's it's just three things. Here's the truth about unexpected hope. Number one is this. You and I, we don't deserve it. Like, if we want to just get honest, you and I do not deserve the hope that Christmas provides to us in the person of Jesus. Like, Mary and Joseph didn't deserve it either. It wasn't like Mary and Joseph took a parenting aptitude test, and they did such a great job that God's like, oh, finally. Like, like no. No, they're just two people God chose. They didn't deserve it. Right? If you look through over and over again, we, we don't deserve God's goodness. We don't deserve, like our sin is wretched and rank, and God still chose to put on, on skin and come to us. The second thing is this, is we can't earn it. Not only do we not deserve it, but the truth is this, we cannot earn it. Ephesians 2, 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God. In other words, this means this, no matter how good you are for the rest of your life, you can never be good enough to earn salvation. Salvation is not about being right. It's about being forgiven. And I got a little more preaching to do, but there's no reason to wait to the end of the sermon. I, I want to invite you right now, if you're in the room and you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, I want to invite you right now to just to raise your hand. Right, right in this moment to go, you know, I admit I, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus came to save me. And I confess and I commit in this moment to surrender my life to Jesus. Just raise your hand right now as a declaration that I surrender to Jesus. I see your hands, and here's what I want you to do if you raise your hand. I just want you to just tell Jesus what you just told me, that Jesus, I surrender. I, I don't deserve this. I can't earn it. I, I'm not, I can't be the Lord of my life any longer. You're now the Lord of my life. And you just tell him right now. And then finally this. For those of you who just raised your hand or for those of you who surrendered your life decades and decades ago, here's the truth about, about this unexpected hope of Jesus coming to us. We cannot remain the same once we experience it. Like if you have truly, fully, actually experienced Jesus in, in coming and dwelling amongst us and living and dying for your sin, you cannot just sit like a bump on a log. When we experience the unexpected hope of Jesus, when we experience Jesus leading in love, it invites us to join. When we experience the rescue of Jesus, it compels us to rescue others. And so what we have an opportunity to do this season is to lead with love. When we lead with love, it looks like this. It's generosity. That maybe right now during this response time, you would fill your before all things cards and you would come and commit going, Jesus, because you went first, because you came to rescue me, I want to commit to being a part of the rescue mission. I want to commit to put you before all things. For some of us, it's, it's serving at Bay Meadows on December 12th. We're going to lead with love. For some of us, it's this. It's having meaningful gospel conversations with people in our life. 
Because of Christmas parties and family and all the families, you have more opportunities in the next month to talk to a coworker, to talk to a family member, to invite somebody to the Christmas Eve service, to share with them the gospel, to share with them, here's what I think Christmas is actually all about. And here's the deal. When we realize that Jesus led with love and loved us, it compels us to love others. Christmas is about the fully divine Jesus coming on a rescue mission. It's about the fact that Jesus came to rescue us and then now for whatever reason, he's invited us to join him in grave robbing. Like Jesus has invited us to join him in declaring that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that his son who was fully God took on humanity, stepped into our depravity to offer us his righteousness in life. And even though the enemy may may make you feel like you are the Lord of your life, the truth is this, is that Jesus is a far better king of your world than you'll ever be. That what Christmas is about is Jesus leading with love and us responding to that and us receiving that love and choosing to love others in the name and the love and the declaration of unexpected hope that comes in Jesus. So I've shared with you what I'm convicted about. I'm convicted that my family will hear and will, will see and experience my faith way before they hear it. I'm convicted that geography will not be a limitation for the gospel. I'm convicted that the church has to lead with love. And I want to close with this conviction. I'm convicted that God's doing something in this city. I'm I'm convicted that God's doing something in Jacksonville that years and years and decades and decades we're going to look back on and go, can you believe we got to be a part of that revival? Like history books are going to be written about what happened in Jacksonville. And I am convicted that God is doing something in this city that is just beyond anything we could expect. That there is an unexpected hope brewing and developing amongst us. And I believe that it's Jesus declaring his fullness, his divinity, made known and made accessible by his humanity. So here's what we're going to do to respond. I want you to stand with me. And as we respond, we're going to respond like we always do. We're going to bring our cards down to the boxes. If you want to make a commitment, your tithes and offerings, we've got an opportunity for you to pray. But what we're going to do is we're actually going to end today singing and declaring an anthem that there's greater things to be done in the city. That we believe because of the fact that God came and was born in the city of Bethlehem and his, and his love was made known to the world, that we believe, we're convicted, I'm convicted that God's doing something in Jacksonville that we get to be a part of. So would you pray with me and we're just going to respond. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you chose to love us. Jesus, thank you so much that you chose to dwell amongst us. You didn't have to. There was, there was no force, but you chose to come and serve that which you created. You chose to sustain all the heartbeats of the world except your own. You chose to let it stop beating. You chose to dwell amongst us. Emmanuel, God, with us. Hope, unexpected hope, right in our faces. God, you chose to become incarnate and live amongst us. And God, we're, we're praying, we're declaring, we're hoping, and we're, we're leaning into this truth, God, that you're doing something in this city that's going to blow our minds. You're going to do something in this city that's historical. And so, God, just as Christ came to Bethlehem, we're declaring Christ is the Lord and the King of Jacksonville. And so, God, we declare that we've met you and we've, been, we've, been, we've had an unexpected hope introduced into our life. And we want to lead with love that you would do things in this city, that greater things would be done because of your love for us. God, it's in your precious, it's in your holy and your powerful name we pray. Amen.